This episode of Broken Girl Unchained is brought to you by Steve Sasko, Jewelry Designs, and the Life After Project. guys this is julie get and you're listening and watching to broken girl unchained podcast and i am sitting here with my lovely and handsome yet pain in the ass co-host that i think about throat punching on a daily basis mr me always a pleasure <laughs> and today we have um, a very special guest of ours and we've been anxious to have her um, on the show and um, she is a licensed therapist as well as she has her own practice and she specializes in relationships and love and um, you're a sex therapist as well as a mm-hmm. uh, what else am I missing a trauma um, yeah you're just a you're just a therapist in all areas <laughs> I need help <laughs> Miss Kate Bellastrary I'm so impressed you got my name right that's right. usually a non-starter for people Good I job. butcher everyone's name that's why <laughs> it, it gets it gives me anxiety every time it's like I try to pronounce someone's name so I always throw it his way <laughs> so I was like I don't disrespect anyone or disappoint myself there you go save myself the embarrassment <laughs> so um okay so why don't you go ahead and um kind of i mean i've already introduced you mm-hmm. but why don't you go ahead and give a little bit more information on your background and sure. who you are and yeah, stuff like that yeah. well first thanks so much for having me on the show i've been listening to some of your episodes since we got in contact and i, I really appreciate the work that you're doing so thank you thank you thank for, you for that. Um, so my background i'm a licensed uh, psychologist i'm a clinical and forensic psychologist and I spent probably the, the bulk of my early career days working in the prison systems and working in the court systems, working with people who had been um, convicted and adjudicated of sexually violent crimes for the most part. Wow. Um, so I spent a lot of time really sort of understanding kind of what compels some of what we consider to be the most egregious human behavior. And from there... You know, I started uh, working with people across all different kinds of trauma and sexuality related issues and have transitioned into private practice. Wow. I can't even imagine. I mean, like you're engaging with these people Mm -hmm. and you are actually you dive in deep as to I mean, they're considered the most evil. Mm. I mean, you know, so to speak, you know what I mean? <laughs> how do you deal with that as how do you how do you yeah, separate? Yeah, I think it's a little bit challenging at first, but as just like with an emergency room physician, when you're used to seeing bullet holes and broken limbs all day, after a while it doesn't have the same impact on you. And so I think when you work in any 
any environment that is very acute, very chaotic, it can be a little jarring initially, but over time you come to expect, you know, this is what I'm walking into. And so you armor up appropriately and you learn how to compartmentalize. Here's how I am and what I see when I'm at work. And then what I choose to do with that at home can be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's a gosh. I mean, how how do you deal with um, when it comes to children? Is that where it's like, you know, well, I don't personally work with children. Right. I only work with adults. But I think you're asking, how is it to hear stories about yes. children being hurt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that definitely is a little more challenging because we tend to think about our children as the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So you know, I have a uterus. And so I guess that makes me qualified to be somewhat maternal. <laughs> right, right. Well, so, you know, it evokes some, certainly some, you know, feelings. This, this is a question that I, that has, I've worked with therapists all my life just because, I mean, and I'm very open about, you know, being a suicide survivor, mm-hmm. as well as being um, mentally, verbally, and physically abused, as well as trauma, mm-hmm. you know, how, and I've, all the therapists that I've worked with, it's like they always tell me this one thing that infuriates me. What's that? How does that make you feel? (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm telling you the way it makes me feel. Mm. You know what I mean? But I think is, does every therapist have empathy? Well, I certainly can't speak for every therapist, but I, I would say therapists have more empathy than people in other professions by trade. A lot of what drives people into the work uh, of being a therapist is that they are very empathic and they understand the deep nuances and levels of feeling that people can have. And when you have that capability, it becomes much easier to do the work as a therapist because you can see where people are maybe a bit more disconnected from their emotions. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, that's one of, one of the reasons we ask that annoying question, how do you feel? Right. Because when especially when people have endured a lot of trauma, our bodies protect us. Our brain and our bodies protect us by separating us from the emotions that are mm-hmm. really uncomfortable. Right. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of the work of the therapist is to try to help people reintegrate in a way that feels tolerable. Right, right. Well, and I think with dealing with my own um you know sociopathic narcissistic (laughs) um past marriage (laughs) um I think and I I I will be the first person to say that he didn't just abuse me I didn't just abuse him we abused each other Mm. you know and I think that self-awareness is always very very important Mm -hmm. and it's key um to understanding your own behavior Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what plagues me is, is that emotionless part, you Mm. know, with anyone, it's like, how can you be so cold or how can, Mm. how can you just leave me here crying? Is Mm -hmm. it because they shut themselves off and they don't want to feel that or, well, I mean, it's different for different people. For for some people, their brains didn't develop with the same level of robustness as others around, you know, uh, emotional awareness and experience and certainly their ability to perceive emotion in other people. So I think we have to look at it from sort of a cognitive capacity standpoint, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. But, you know, for other people, it's really a question of how defended are they 
to whatever the feelings that they might feel are in reaction to what they see another person exhibiting. So for a lot of people, when they see someone in pain, and it's likely because of something they did, that evokes a lot of shame in them. Mm. And so to protect from that shame, they just shut it off. And they, their feelings say, sayonara, I'm checking out, yeah. not, not present for this, because they don't want to feel that. And so to avoid being in touch with their own emotional reaction and their inability to tolerate and, and handle it, they just sort of become dismissive and callous to mm-hmm. what other people are experiencing. And that's just unhealthy. I, I mean, I think uh, <laughs> yeah. that's my that's my that's my diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> think about it. If something is so uncomfortable, one of the psychological gymnastics that we all have at our disposal to make it more tolerable or less visible is to just bat it away. Right. And so if we're dismissive of someone else's pain, we don't have to look at it. And if we don't have to look at it, then we don't have to feel the way we feel about it. Yeah, I, I know that that shame piece is mm-hmm. I've done it. I, I, I do it a lot. It's yeah. a, it's a tough yeah, one for me a, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, you, you look at something and, and you look at it and then the reality hits and you're like, fuck, I, mm-hmm. I actually did that to mm-hmm. that person. This is someone I care about, someone I love. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't even, you know, it's, it's a, one of those things that's hard to process. It is. You know? And it really sometimes competes with how we see ourselves as a person. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Most of us don't walk around thinking I'm a big jerk, so I'm fine if I do jerk things. But when we really get down to it, you know, when we're confronted with, oops, I did a jerk thing. Yeah. Calling someone out. No one likes to be called out. No one likes to be called out. Yeah. But, but when it really impedes our ability to see ourselves as good and we don't have the tolerance to handle, you know, enough reality that we are both, we have both good and bad aspects of our behavior. I hate mm-hmm. using those words as it's qualifiers, true. but yeah, we, we have healthy behaviors, unhealthy, unhealthy behaviors right. that we exhibit. And so all of those things make up who we are. No one person is all good or all bad. Right. I know it can be tough to, you know, I, I know I'm internalizing a lot of this because yeah. it's, it's hitting home, you know, and it's well y- because y- I call him cold. I'm like, you are so cold and, and I know? can be. But it, and I think you hit a, a point, you, you know, it's like you, you do these things and then you you're confronted with the reality mm-hmm. of them. And then you you look at yourself in the mirror and you absolutely hate the person that you see staring mm. back at you. And so it's just. It's like fuck it. Well, I'm a piece of shit. I'm I'm a horrible person. Mm-hmm. Then this is who I am, and 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 then it makes it tough to be empathetic towards someone else's feelings and and that sort of stuff. You know, it does. Yeah. And I think for being a partner, where it's just like you know, well, no, you're not a piece of shit of a person. You did a piece of shit of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like that action was a piece of shit, but you are not a piece of shit. Well, and you just hit on such a key distinction, right? Guilt is about feeling bad about something we've done, mm-hmm. right? That behavior I did was a shitty behavior. Right. Shame is about feeling bad about who we are at our core. Mm-hmm. I'm a shit person, mm-hmm. right? So oftentimes we are conditioned to internalize our behavior as evidence of who we are, mm-hmm. as opposed to holding true. I am a good person. Mm-hmm. I'm good enough, nice enough. We look at it as like, uh-oh. I have evidence that I'm just a piece of crap. And so we go with that narrative and that, that shame is really mm-hmm. intolerable. So we do get dismissive to ourselves and to others as a protective strategy. Yeah. It, it becomes part of your self-talk. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes part of that inner monologue that's, that's, this is okay. I guess this is who I am. So 
<laughs> you know, oh, yeah. let me just roll with the punches. Well, well I it, think it all has to do with, okay, so if you make a mistake the first time, it, it becomes a mistake. Mm-hmm. The second time becomes a choice. So if you keep repeating those same patterns, then the problem is, is that you're not seeking, you're not self-reflecting, you're, or I don't know if I'm right or if I'm wrong, but I just feel like that person isn't self-reflecting. That person is just, he or he or she is okay with making that same mistake. Mm -hmm. Is that our choice, so to speak? Well, yeah. And I think that's, that's where, you know, relationships can get really murky because you might do something that works for you and doesn't cause any distress for you, but makes your partner batty. Right. Right. And same with your partner. I'm sure they have a long list of things that they do that drive you crazy because we're humans and we're designed to annoy each other and love each other. Right. So (laughs) that's just life. But what happens, I think, is that some people conflate um, an apology for I hurt you with I'm going to change this behavior. And they make promises i'm never going to do this again when in fact they actually will and Mm -hmm. and what makes more sense is to say you know this is just kind of how i do life and i would like for us to talk about a way to negotiate through it so that neither of us is asking the other to change at their core but if there's something that is within my power to control and i'm interested in controlling it then i will because i love you and care about you I think those boundaries are very important just mm-hmm. in general. You know what I mean? Setting those boundaries and at the very beginning of your relationship. Mm-hmm. And then um, since we're on the relationship topic, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, since, you know, and th- if those boundaries are being crossed constantly and your partner isn't changing or you're and you're doing everything in in your power to to make it work, everybody wants back what they put in right mm-hmm. so if it's if i'm not getting back what i'm putting in then that what if that person starts feeling like they're not good enough like mm-hmm. you know is that is that something you come across often like that self-worth that self-doubt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well our relationships are where we go often to feel secure and if we start feeling insecure in our relationships it can trickle into feeling insecure about ourselves so, so yes, short answer. <laughs> <laughs> when you do a lot of that internal excavation and, and learn how to reframe and develop a new practice of speaking to yourself, a new practice of setting boundaries with people, really evaluating your needs and creating some kind of a measure to ask yourself, are my needs being met? You know, and then taking action if they're not. All of those things together can help people feel more worthy internally. And then they'll notice their relationships start to change. But what if you, they're, what if your partner's needs aren't being met, but you're, and let's get, let's go into the sex part of it. Okay. Like, what if like you, you know, and this is just hypothetically, what if, you know, your, your partner is wanting that, um, that high sexual activity, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Three, four times a day. However, that your person lacks, you know, um, I don't know, affection or something like that. How do you, you know, if you and you, you want every, I would think everybody wants attention or not attention, but affection, mm. you know, and it's, it's not being 
relayed over to the other partner, you never know, like, is this a good time? Or is that a good time? Or, you know, like, or I, I don't know, it's like, or I'm wearing lingerie, and you know, that your partner isn't willing to touch you or something like that. I mean, that can always be a sign of, you know, being dismissed, right? Mm, I don't know if I would say that's necessarily a sign of being dismissed. It depends on how your partner, you know, says, I'm not really into it right now. They might be dismissive. They might also be really kind and empathic about the fact that it's a mismatch in libido Mm -hmm. for that moment. Um, You know, but if they're like, no, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Or I I don't want to touch you. Yeah, that might feel more dismissive. But, you know, I think it's dangerous to get into kind of finite terms around this because every couple is different. Every person is different. So what might feel very dismissive to one person might feel fine Mm -hmm. for another. But I think in a partnership, if you feel dismissed by your partner, your feelings are real. And whether or not that's their intention, whether or not it would land similarly or differently with someone else, if you're feeling dismissed, that's the opportunity to say to your partner, I'm feeling dismissed right now, right? Can we have this conversation a different way? Yeah, yeah. I know I've ran into that um, in a couple of um, past relationships where it's like, you know, I don't feel like touching you right now. And I could be like just needing a hug, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, I I mean, let's just face it, my my life's a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, and, you know, and it becomes it becomes overwhelming to me where it's just like you don't see me in pain like you don't want to touch me or you know I'm wearing lingerie I feel sexy like you don't want to touch me like Mm -hmm. you know where it's just like roll over go to sleep I'm like you know there would be times in my past where it was just like you know a red flag to me where it I wasn't good enough or Mm. I wasn't you know he didn't find me attractive or whatever is that common Um, it's very common for partners to make up that it's about them and now I'm not going to lie sometimes there are changes in attraction that partners experience and they haven't communicated appropriately or you know there might be some like tension between a couple and and the partner's really just not in the mood right now they might be struggling with some resentment or some annoyance Mm -hmm. or something like that but I think what I'm hearing you ask is really about how again that message is conveyed because it doesn't really matter what the reason is if somebody's having the conversation in a way that is attuned that is empathic that is kind that Mm -hmm. is about we're in this together even though I know you're really in the mood right now and you need this and I can't give it that's a different conversation than I don't want to touch you yeah so I think you know it's important to remember that language really matters in a relationship our verbal and our nonverbal yes I agree not um not are we arguing semantics right now (laughs) I'm just kidding being in a relationship with someone who has one of those two um, personality disorders is likely going to be very challenging unless that's sort of your thrill Right, because there is often a lot of power grabbing that happens in relationships um, with people who are more narcissistically or antisocially organized that can feel really uncomfortable. And, and at the same time, there are some people who really love it and thrive on sort of those power dynamics and 
the chess play of it all. I have a, a question for you that the power of touch, like it's therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, um, I know I used to have cancer and my ex-husband used to have cancer and they would always, you know, oh, and my, um, my eight-year-old, she was a preemie and they would always tell me like, you know, there's you know, skin to skin, skin to skin, Mm -hmm. you know, um, touch therapy. How does that, uh, the power of touch is so important. Mm -hmm. Energy is so important. (laughs) So how Mm. do you, if someone is lacking, you know, um, affection, how do you, how do you go about the power of touch? How do, how do I, emphasize the power of touch there there's so many places to to talk for me to answer in in that question because i feel like there are a couple of questions embedded in it let me start with the power of touch first right why is touch so important in every single cell in our body we have the capacity for cellular memory right and when we have positive touch loving touch warm touch neutral touch and of course painful and traumatic touch our body remembers those experiences so a lot of how we communicate is through that cellular level right how we communicate within our own bodies to ourselves and with other people so when we're talking about relationships we're really talking about a process of interpersonal neurobiology right so your nervous system is talking to your nervous system implicitly this is not something that's conscious, right? Your stomach doesn't pop out and say, hey, right. I have a message, right? But what happens is the, the, the eye contact that you use, the understanding and definitions that you make up about what you see in, in your partner's nonverbal behavior send signals of safety and threat throughout your body. You know, as living organisms, we are always looking for what's safe, what's not. And touch is a big way that we interpret safety. Mm -hmm. And so when we are working with someone, um, our partners, for example, you know, for some people, touch might feel really threatening if they're already in a high stress situation. It actually feels like it's encroaching too much. But for other people, touch can feel like the biggest comfort, right? So every single person's body is different and has different needs and different levels of receptivity and acceptance based on whatever their early life experiences and their biological temperament is. So it's dangerous to say, when somebody's stressed, give them a hug. No. When somebody's stressed, ask what they would like. Yeah, how can, <laughs> right? what can I do to help? <laughs> right. Yeah. How would you, would you like to be touched right now? Where? With what? Would you like a blanket? Would you like me to put my arm around you? You know, when somebody's that dysregulated, sometimes touch makes it better, sometimes it makes it worse. So when I'm working with couples, the conversation is really about how do you talk to each other about what you need in the moment? How are you being in service of providing your partner with relief from their overactivation or their underactivation so that you can both be in an optimal space and then find resolve to whatever it is you're fighting about because mm-hmm. you can't get relief and from in the fight until your nervous systems are more regulated so that's where touch can really play a big role yeah i definitely agree now how can you you know i, I grew up in a house uh, it was a loving house but my parents mm-hmm. were not affectionate I, I'm, I'm not an affectionate touchy-feely person mm-hmm. But I've, I've had partners in the past who were. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know what my question is. Like, How do you learn to be that 
that person you know it was i didn't even see my parents i've talked about this before mm-hmm. i didn't even know my parents kissed mm-hmm. like I, I saw wedding videos and i was shocked I'm like holy <laughs> shit you guys are kissing <laughs> you know mom sat on her spot dad at his chair right you know i think i was 14 when i realized why the door was locked on sunday mornings you know and it was just like so it's not something i, I necessarily grew up around right. but it's something that I want to give to someone else, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how. And I've had people tell me like, how do you not know how to be affectionate? How do you not know how to touch somebody? And then I mm-hmm. feel like shit. Cause I'm like, well, I don't know how to do this. You yeah. know? Or even like cuddle or, you know, those are, I'm, I'm an A plus spooner, but that's about, that's about the, <laughs> <laughs> that's about the end of my wheelhouse. There, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think really it's, it's kind of a question of what gets in the way of it for, for many people, because oftentimes we, we just, I shouldn't say oftentimes, more often than not, we just end up doing what we observed, right, when we were growing up. Yeah. So for people who grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of physical affection, it does feel sort of alien and outside of what feels organic to them. So it really is more of setting an intentional practice. And and I use the word practice very purposefully because when we're trying to learn a new normal, the more we do it, right, the, the easier it is. And so basically, you know, when someone's nervous system isn't used to initiating touch or receiving touch, it's a learning process. So you might set aside time every day to practice touching, cuddling. How does this feel? What do you like? What's, you know, what's it, what's going on in my body as I reach out? Or what's getting in the way that actually makes it really hard to lift my thousand pound arm right now and put it around her, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, and I think self-talk has a lot to do with it too because I think I've experienced the same thing where, you know, well, on the opposite end, where it's just like, you know, well, you think I don't want you to touch you. You you want me to put in all, all of this work and I can't put in all, all of this work because mm-hmm. I'm putting in all the work in other areas in our right. relationship. So it becomes overwhelming, you know, for the other partner. So how does that other partner, you know, uh, translate that over without being, you know, communicating that? Because it just, to me, I feel like I'm just communicating and it's being translated totally wrong. Well, we're talking about two different ways of learning. Mm, right mm-hmm. and have you ever seen an adult try to learn how to ride a bike no it's a hot mess <laughs> it's a hot mess more often than not because we've been going about our lives never having experienced those movements before so it's foreign in the body the body doesn't have a road map for it and because we're older as adults our body has um you know more opportunities for other procedural memories to have developed so Somebody may not have ridden a bike, but maybe they play basketball. So you want you ask them to go dribble a ball and they're golden, right? Their body knows how to do that. It's second nature. They don't even hesitate. Bring the bike back and they're like, ugh. Because not only do they not have the procedural memory in their body to understand what those forms and what that movement feels like, Mm -hmm. but they also have a lot of meaning to speak to what you were saying about what that means. Does the bike want me to ride it? Maybe it's better on its kickstand. I don't know about this. What if I fall off and bust a knee and, uh, you know, my hip and all the things. So, you know, it's it's two different ways of learning, cognitive learning and and, and sort of sensory or somatic learning. So when people grow up in a home where there wasn't a lot of touch. They don't have a somatic memory to know what that's like. So it takes time to develop it. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to, to do that later in life 
not impossible, but harder because our body and our brains have been doing the thing they've been doing all that much longer. <laughs> right. Um, I do have one more question mm-hmm. and then you can go ahead and dive in any of you. Um, let's see here. What can couples do to rekindle that, that intimacy that might have been lost through complacency mm. or with through other, you know, other trauma or other issues, the lack of in- intimacy that affects a relationship? Well, the answer to that question is different depending on what <clears throat> has sparked the, the, um, I guess, lack of a spark, right? Or the shift in their spark. So when there's an issue of trauma, it, the trauma needs to be resolved. And, and when, and I don't mean resolved as in we never think about it again, but the acute after effects that are impeding intimacy need to be addressed. And the survivor has an opportunity then to feel more aligned in their own skin and then can, you know, go back into the relationship from a place of stability as a place from as opposed to a place from woundedness yeah yeah Uh, yeah so um if it's about boredom yeah right then i think that's a different conversation that's about investing some new lifeblood into the relationship it might mean taking some time on your own get some new hobbies develop some new dimensions to yourself so that when you come back together there is spark there's traction there's Mm -hmm. some kind of novelty that makes you exciting again because human beings are novel creatures we habituate to what we see every day over and over again and we get bored right 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 no i definitely agree one of the the topics that's come up quite a bit with our our listeners is you know people dealing with infidelity and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And mm-hmm. There's one question that always seems to come around that we've asked yeah. a bunch of times, and that's the ability for a, a cheater to be reformed. Is it possible if even if they've done it a couple times, or is that just kind of once you are who you are kind of thing? <laughs> No, I absolutely believe in the power of reform. And when someone is motivated to not be unfaithful anymore, they, there are lots of ways that they can find themselves on that path of being faithful and not stepping out on their partner. Um, it can be challenging sometimes to, for those people to find that motivation because oftentimes infidelity is a protective structure for them, right? Helping them ward off feelings of insecurity or not feeling powerful in their relationship. Or or, filling the void. Yeah, filling a void. Or maybe they're bored and they don't know how to ask for what they need. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you have to look at the underlying impetus for the infidelity. But if they are motivated to make that change, then yes, absolutely, they can reform. Certainly when there's infidelity in a relationship, that couple can repair. It requires a lot of work. And more often than not, the partner who has been betrayed will evidence you know, symptoms of betrayal trauma for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that will include a lot of safety-seeking behavior. So right. potentially snooping or asking a lot of questions and trying to understand, what are you thinking? Where are you going? Who will you be seeing? Whew. How's your recovery coming along? How's it going over there? They want to make sure that they're safe. That can be very upending for the person who has been unfaithful because it can bring in their face the reality of that shame again or feeling helpless like god when will they ever heal and what is what is it going to take for us to get back to a place of normal and so if both members of the coupleship can recognize that it's a rocky road but they can do it then usually with a lot of um, empathy for dysregulation Mm -hmm. attunement care um, 
affirming of whatever the partner's needs are, the, the, the betrayed partner's needs are to, you know, try to help them get there. They can really make a lot of strides. And for couples who do make it out on the other side of that, their relationship tends to be so much stronger mm-hmm. and it really can bring them much closer together. Now, is that because they've, in that whole healing process, they've addressed some of the underlying issues mm-hmm. that kind of cause that, that piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 See, my thing is, is that I'm very observant. You know, I've been, I was with my ex-husband for 22 years and, you know, I I look for those signs. Mm -hmm. Like I look for them and I think it's just my, you know, my safety safety seeking behavior. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like that safety mechanism, you know? And so when I see those signs, I automatically, huh? Well, you know, like, why is he smiling at his phone? Yeah, like, or or how come I walk in and you're just like closing every one of your app every time I walk in the room? Or you know, it's like you, it's those little things because I'm so fractured and Mm -hmm. broken from my last, where I broke. You know, I will bring it into my next relationship. How does someone like that, you know? heal from so much damage and so much pain yeah. i mean do you, I, i'm i'm at the point where i don't even believe in love at this point you know what i mean it's like i don't even believe that people believe in monogamy mm. you know and it's just because i've been damaged from my last relation my last marriage and then my next ma- my next relationship after that mm-hmm. there's damage so it's just like i'm not too sure you know If I believe in love. Well, certainly when betrayal happens, it can completely devastate people's ideas of love. And what I find in the work that I do and also in my own experience is that when you challenge the definition that you have had of what love means, you can actually open yourself up for a more um, reality-rooted process in the future. Because when, unfortunately, in order to experience great love, tremendous love, we have to be willing to take those risks. And when we have been betrayed more ever, but certainly more frequently in our relationships, it can make it really scary to take those risks again. So I think it's really a combination of, you know, addressing kind of the what's the worst case scenario in my mind first. So what's the greatest fear? Are you afraid you might be alone? Are you afraid that you might end up physically hurt or get an STI? What is the fear that comes with infidelity? Mm -hmm. And then how do you build some safeguards around yourself and with future partners to talk about that, right? So that you can learn how to get those safety needs met differently than you have before. And if your partner's not willing to address it, well, then that's a nice big fat red flag that says maybe they're not a good partner for you. Right. Five warning signs before falling in love with a narcissist (laughs) or a sociopath. Are you asking, is this a pop quiz? No. (laughs) (laughs) What are your five signs? What what would you get? What would you tell our listeners? Yeah, let me think about how to answer this. There are different flavors of narcissism that it's important to be aware of. I think when we think about narcissism, typically we think about sort of the Gaston character, you know, very grandiose, full of themselves, and certainly those are things to look for. If someone is really boastful about everything going on for them, and there's no really ro- there's no real room in the conversation for you, that might be an indication. They could also just be nervous, right? So look for multiple data points to suggest a pattern in, in any sort of um, one hypothesis. But 
Yeah, we've got, so of course there's grandiosity. Look at whether or not they have evidence of empathy for you, for the wait staff, if you're out at a restaurant. Um, how do they talk about what they see in the news? You know, are they very callous? Are they very discarding of other people's feelings? Do they call all of their exes crazy? Oh, yeah. Right? Because narcissists tend to idealize their partners at the start. And then the minute they don't align with the fantasy of who the narcissist needs them to be in order to shore up their own ego, they discard them, they devalue them, and they completely desecrate their image of this person in their mind. That's that protective strategy again. Mm -hmm. You've disappointed me a little bit. I have to make you useless and throw you away so that you can't hurt me anymore. Right. Right. So you want to, you know, look for if all of their other exes are the problem, all the other exes are crazy. Do they take any accountability in what happened in the relationship or are they blaming it entirely on other people? Um, And then I look for things that aren't maybe so obvious. I look for things like, does this person assume responsibility for everyone's feelings around them? You know, do they go out of their way to kind of play God in a sense? You know, I can make you feel happy if you just let me show up on my white horse for you. You know, do they need to be needed in that way? That's mm, sort of more mm-hmm. of a covert example yeah. of narcissism. And covert is the most, like, evil. Oh, my gosh, they scare the heck out of me. And, yes, I mean, I have my own experience. And I have to tell you, like, even when I have those red flags, mm-hmm. and even though I know them, you can still like be sucked in, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So that I think that that's the most, because they're so manipulative and they're so smooth and they're so, you know. Well, and it's easy to spot Gaston, mm-hmm. right? Gaston comes into the bar and everybody sees him and he's bombastic and he makes a big show of everything and he's the center of attention. But somebody who has a more covert presentation of narcissism, you know, typically tends to operate a little bit more under the radar. They're more sleuth in their symptom presentation and it's not as loud. So it just feels good when they're like, I got that. Let me get that for you. Let me do that for you. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, how nice. Yes, right. please do. What a gentleman. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Right. And, and I'm certainly not knocking um, polite gestures, right? We could all as a culture use more of those. Yeah. But... When somebody needs to be needed, when they feel threatened because you can do for yourself, that's a problem, Mm -hmm. right? And it might be a red flag that they need to be needed, uh, which could be an indication of a more covert narcissistic pattern. One last question Mm -hmm. before, because I know we're running out of time. Um, There's different styles of abuse, like mental abuse, Mm -hmm. um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Can you break down financial abuse? (laughs) How much time do we have? Uh, We have like, uh, (laughs) I don't know. So, I mean, certainly financial abuse exists. And maybe an easy way to think about this is to think about how, uh, what's the relationship between um, each person in the relationship and money? Is money being weaponized? Um, Is someone creating a financial dependence in order to exact need or avoid abandonment? Um, or have control? Are they depriving someone of money or resources? Are they depriving themselves? You know, there, there certainly is a lot of interpersonal financial coercion and, and dependence and abuse that happens, exploitation. But also there's a lot of self-abuse when it comes to finances that I think a lot of people might be well served to think about. 
Are they depriving themselves of simple pleasures that they can't afford? Mm-hmm. You know, I work with people who will wear the same pair of holy socks for 10 years because they don't want to spend $5 on a new pair of socks mm-hmm. because underneath it all, they don't really feel like they're worthy of that level of self-care. Mm-hmm. And so in subtle ways like that, when we look at financial deprivation, we can start to unpack um, a little bit more self-abuse around money which is always an interesting thing to consider. How about if um, when someone's throwing it in your face, like constantly, you know what I mean? Like because of you I, I, or because of me, you you have all of this or because of, you know, whatever. I, I mean, it, it, it's just, it becomes overwhelming, you know, for some of my listeners. I know a, a lot of my listeners deal with that and um, it, it impacts them, you know, where yeah. it's just like, well, this is the situation that we're in. You should be blessed that we're in this or, you know, or why aren't you proud of taking care of your family or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, it, if it's constantly used as a weapon to hurt you, um, would you call that abuse? Well, what you described sounds like a, a pretty strong combination of emotional abuse and potentially financial abuse. It depends on if money is being withheld or used to control. But you know that comment that you make, look at everything I provide and all that you have, is, is more, in my opinion, um, an outcry of, I'm doing a lot and you don't see it. Right. But if there are tethers and conditions along to Mm -hmm. that, then that would be considered more financial abuse. Okay. Okay. I know. um, Yeah. A few of my listeners have asked that question and I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a professional by any means. And, um, you know, this is all based off of experience and, you know, my stories um, and Mike's stories and stuff like that. You know, we're not doctors. We're not lawyers. Um, but you are a doctor (laughs) (laughs) in California. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I love everything that you have brought to the table Mm -hmm. and I love everything that, um, you're, you're spot on. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank, you know, uh, Thank you from all of us here at Broken Girl Unchained um, for taking the time and being patient mm-hmm. with us while we pull everything together. <laughs> oh, you guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on this episode. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I hope to have you back again and maybe mm-hmm. have a little bit more time. Maybe after, you know, COVID <laughs> calms down a little bit, yeah. um, we can have, have you back and have some more um, questions because I know that there was... We didn't even... We barely scratched the surface. I know, we barely scratched <laughs> yeah. the surface. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, if you would like, um, we would love to have you back. But That would be great. Until next time. Okay. <laughs> this is Broken Girl Unchained.